What's going on, folks? This is Craig from the Asset Horizon Podcast. And today, what I'm doing is featuring a podcast that I appeared on recently. The podcast is called Psyche with our friend Kike, who has done a lot to represent us and support us online. Kike and I share a very niche interest in the work of James Hillman, Carl Jung, and this idea of alchemy as a philosophy or a psychoanalytic paradigm. And Kike did the important legwork of getting for today's interview Stanton Marlin. Stan Marlin, he is a preeminent figure in the world of Jungian psychoanalysis, and he's writing books on alchemy and dream work and all kinds of interesting stuff. But what's interesting about Stanton Marlin is that he also works a bit in the post-structuralist tradition and in postmodernism. So you'll see in his books things like Derrida, Foucault, Kristeva, Lacan, and others. Throughout the course of this interview, Stan gives us a wonderful introduction to all of these topics and even recounts some of his own dreams and dream work from the past. So I guess we'll call this an episode of Inner Experience. Stan, thank you so much for being a part of this collaborative episode with Psyche Podcast and Acid Horizon. I know we're very excited to spend some time with you, getting to know you better and exploring your wonderful work. I I actually wanted to start with just my own kind of personal narrative for a second and intersection with your work. Your amazing book, Black Sun, I believe was originally delivered as lectures at the Houston Jung Center. Yes, And that's actually where I did my own kind of therapeutic journey. And my therapist gave me that book to read. So on, mm-hmm. on multiple levels, that was a very important work for me and shaping me as a person. So I'm, I'm grateful that you wrote it. And, and I'm, I'm curious if at some point in this conversation, we can go deeper into that. The, the, the other thing that I kind of wanted to kind of throw out there was I know from listening to various other podcasts that you have a really interesting story to tell about how you first met James Hillman. Oh, yeah. and, and this really interesting dream that you had that that then linked you up together in a la- in analysis. I'm wondering if you could speak to that because I know we're both really interested in James Hillman. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, James was a longtime friend and analyst of mine. The way that I met him was very unusual. I had read his book, Revisioning Psychology. And I was very impressed with the book. It was a book, a kind of book I wish I could have written. I just was fascinated by it. And I often thought I would love to meet James and, you know, even thought that it would be great to be in analysis with him as, as a way of getting to know his work in a deeper way, in a better way than just reading about it and thinking about it. I went to one of my meetings at the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts, and I walked out of a meeting and went into a swimming pool. It was outside of the meeting, and there was a guy in the swimming pool. We started talking, and it turned out to be James Hillman. Wow. (laughs) Really surprising event. 
And we had a really interesting talk at one point. He asked me what was going on inside. And I said, oh, just a lot of politics. And he said, well, it's all politics. It's all politics. And it kind of shocked me, not expecting to hear that from him. So we got to know each other a little bit that way. He was down there because I think he was thinking about joining the Interregional Society, which he ultimately decided to do. And it's a place we got to know each other pretty well. And at one point, I had a dream about going into analysis with him. And the dream was something about going to lie down with him. Mm. And uh, the dream made me a little bit anxious. And I didn't know what it meant exactly, except that I wanted more intimacy with him, thinking about an analytic process. And I had already finished my analytic training, so... The thought of getting back into analysis after years and years of doing analytic work was a little strange, but working with him was fascinating to me as an idea because of what he had written. So I told him my dream and I said, I had a dream about coming to lie down with you and wanting to go into analysis with you. And he said, why not come down, come and lie down with me for a while. That's awesome. It was about five years. Oh, wow. (laughs) And it was a very worthwhile experience. That wasn't the only, I don't know whether I should go on to tell you this now, since we're talking about strange things that happened with Hillman, but I wrote about it in the book, Alchemical Psychologies, which was a book I put together, edited in honor of his work and his, we had a conference here in Pittsburgh for him. And the book was an outcome of that conference and I edited it. But I don't know if I should, who do you want me to mention that now or just wait? I, I think so, please. Oh, okay. Well, in the book, one of the things I wrote about was a very strange event because after I worked with James for a long time and we became friends, one of the things that happened was I invited him to my home to stay with me because he was going to give some lectures in Pittsburgh. And when he was here, when he first got here, he came to the door of the library and he looked around in the strangest way and said, is there a little room over to the side there? Mm. And I said, well, how in the world would you know that? He says, I'm not sure, but this, this library seems very familiar somehow. Anyway, he, we talked a little bit about it and I told him about the library and he went home and discovered that the person who built this house was a kind of student of his grandfather, which was the library he grew up in and talked a lot about and loved and so on and so forth. And when that man moved to Pittsburgh, he built a house and had the library replicated here in Pittsburgh. So we both have this library that was a replica of his grandfather's, and we were both kind of surprised at the kind of synchronistic connection that that meant for both of us. And later on in a letter, we had a lot of correspondence, and when he sent me a letter, he says, we share my grandfather's library. Wow. this alchemical picture he bought in Europe and said, this belongs in the library. So I have this picture that he had sent me at the time. 
So it was another one of those events of linking up in this strange way that, you know, really fit my feelings toward him, I guess. That is great. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's, that's very meaningful to me. Well, we need to get the blueprints for that library. Seriously. Well, well, Stan, if you don't mind, Kike. No, go for it, please. I was able to meet Hillman once in my life before. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, actually, it was at a seminar at Pacifica, maybe in 2010 or 2011 or thereabouts, one of those years. And I just remember, and I think I said this in a previous podcast with maybe even with Kike, is that he had one of the most memorable handshakes Mm. that I ever remember. But this leads me to the question of, you know, I, I think about mentors quite often because for me, Hillman is a mentor of mine and I'm a mentee, at least through the books. And when I think about mentors, I often think about the kinds of things that they say, like a refrain or maybe something that sticks in the psychoanalytic context, you know, or in the sessions that you had with them. Is there something that Hillman said to you at some point or is there a particular interaction that you had maybe in a therapeutic setting that kind of stays with you? Oh, sure. Yeah, there's a lot of them. I mean, I'm not sure what maybe stands out. One thing I remember him saying when we were working in analysis and he would work really well with the dreams that I would present to him. He had a tremendous sensitivity for images and mm. symbolic meanings. And and at one point he said to me, he says, one thing Stan I enjoy about working with you is that when I interpret a dream, you never ask me further. You work on the on the image. And that really was kind of a connection that we had around the image and about working with that material. That was always an important connection, I felt. And over the years, our relationship just grew and grew so that I almost bought spring publications from him. Mm. Googler and I went and considered buying it together. Paul's another colleague and Jungian friend of Hillman's as well. And we went up to his house to discuss that. And we didn't end up doing it. Uh, but Nancy, Nancy Cater bought it, did a great job with it. Um, but the relationship with Jim just developed and developed. I went, went to lots of parties that he had. He came here. We drove around a lot together. You know, there were moments that I remember when we were in a car together and he said, Stan, pull over. And I said, what's the matter? And I'd pull over and he'd say, look at the way the sun is coming through the trees. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, it was this moment like that. I just sat with that moment. And Jim and I had a very multiple level relationship at one point he knew about my interest in his alchemical work and he actually asked me if I would help him edit the alchemical psychology work that he was working on so I was excited to do that with him I had lots of ideas about it we exchanged lots of letters lots of phone calls lots of ideas that we tried to work through. I felt part of my work with him was sort of trying to push him to get it done and lots <laughs> of letters about, sorry, I'm not getting, you know, I'm in Europe now. And, you know, we had a lot of that kind of thing, but there was a real value that that work had. And I've got 
loads of letters I just sent Margot, you know, his widow, and they might publish them letters that we'd exchanged. Mm. So there's a lot to say about all that, but his alchemical work was very important to me. And alchemy has been a theme of interest in, of mine for a long time. And James really did contribute it, contribute to it. Yeah, I think that brings us to an important first question of ours. One, one of the things that Kike and I share in common is that we both read The Black Sun, your book, and we also more recently read Young's Alchemical Philosophy, which you've written, which, you know, I'm bringing into the conversation here today. And as for me, I mean, my personal journey philosophically has included different moments where I'm coming either back to Jung or back to Hillman and then departing again. And I think it's only until recently did I really start looking closely at the alchemical aspect of their work. And I, I'm, I just want to know, maybe you can give a sense, because I, I imagine that the people who are going to be listening to this aren't going to be even modestly in the weeds as we are with it. So could you give us an overview of why was alchemy as a discipline, as a tradition, important to folks like Jung, Hillman, Gigerich, and others? And how has that appropriation been challenged by, you know, folks who think about alchemy in a traditional sort of way? One of the, the very first things that you talk about in the book is a sort of gatekeeping aspect, like, well, that's not real alchemy. But I, I would argue that you are making the case throughout your book that there is something here, that this process of individuation, which something in our soul or our psyche is always striving towards, is an alchemical process. Mm. Yeah, well, there's a lot to say about it. You know, when Jung first got interested in alchemy, he went to a bookseller and asked if they could get him a book on alchemy. And uh, he got it, and when he got it, he looked through it and thought, what nonsense, and kind of put it aside. But it was sort of in the back of his mind for a while, and when he was reading through it, again, there was a moment at which he had the recognition that it wasn't just literal, that mm. there was a symbolic dimension to it, and that many alchemists differ. I mean, there was a lot of different alchemists, some who were very, you know, rooted in the natural, natural attitude and others who had a symbolic sensitivity. So that the idea of, you know, the work of turning lead into gold was not just working with physical elements, but turning the leaden personality into a golden one. And so Jung, in certain parts of the book, underlined certain things that I discovered when I visited his library. Actually, I went to visit his library in Kuznacht, and his grandson was nice enough to host us and was there for a couple of days looking through his texts and, you know, trying to get notes and trying to figure out some of these questions about Jung's interest and some places he'd underline it and he'd put symbol and things like that. So at a certain moment, you know, alchemy struck him as a very early and powerful and deeply symbolic process of what he was trying to develop in his work on individuation. 
the idea of creating, you know, the individuation process leading to the idea of the self as a kind of a goal or a, an enrichment of the person, transcendent of the ego in some respects, was what he resonated with is what happened was going on in alchemy and that there were many processes that the alchemists were working on that enriched and amplified and made sense to Jung in terms of his own work and his own writing, so that he started to draw a lot from the alchemical works and read them in a manner that was resonant with his own with his own work. And alchemy became very important to him. He Several books of his collected works are on alchemy, and including his final work on the Mysterium Cununctionis, which was, you know, a very powerful book that sort of brought it all together in some respects. I guess I'll just ask a, a quick follow-up, just kind of setting the the stage for the rest of the conversation. Maybe you could just say a few things about what individuation is. Mm. What are what, what are the expectations that that Jung had? Uh, when fleshing out his theory of psychoanalysis. And what is individuation? What happens to a person? Is there a sense of finality? Like, I mean, do you individuate and then you, you know, pass into the heavens? No, certainly not. But like, what <laughs> is it that, that someone would expect to happen over the course of, of a lifetime of Jungian psychoanalysis? Right. Well, it's a big, uh, a big question, important question. You know, individuation has been seen in lots of ways. You know, there's a view of individuation that many look at through in a kind of archetypal vision of temporality and development, literal development and temporal movement throughout different stages of movement. Jung talks about it, for instance, if you want to try to put it in order that Sometimes we start out in a kind of innocence. That innocence blackens like the alchemical negredo. We go down into the darkness, into depths, into depression, into immobilities. And then working on that, something sometimes emerges through varying processes, alchemical processes. For instance, if you read Edinger's work on alchemy, he looks at a lot of the processes like you know, working with the Negredo, working with Sublimatio, working with, you know, the, the the fire and the heat of transformation. I mean, there's a whole list of elements and processes you do in order to change the nature of your own life experience. And as you integrate it, as you integrate aspects of the unconscious, the psyche opens to deeper and broader and wider sensibilities and development. And alchemy has a several stages that one goes through in order to achieve that development. For Jung, the development was the self. And for him, that was a psychological version of the philosopher's stone, mm. the goal of alchemy. So there's that kind of movement. Now, there's many different ways of looking at individuation. There's the archetypal view that has a developmental view. And then there's a view closer to James's view of a kind of circularity, mm. a view that isn't simply linear and developmental, 
but has to do with the multiplicity and circularity of experiences and enrichment and broadening that makes for ourself, not necessarily the self starts, you know, here and goes to this end process. So the ending is not an ending. In a way, there is no ending in a literal sense, but a movement of soul that enriches the, the notion of our beings, so to speak. It's like Hillman, you know, when he talks about the goal, I think it's in chapter eight of his alchemical psychology, he talks about the via longissimo, the, the idea that the work is just a continuing work and that we don't literally achieve a goal. The goal is having the idea of a goal that leads to further work. Yes. And further development. So there are very different ways of looking at it. Edinger is different than Hillman. Kegrick is different than Hillman. All a little different, but many go back to Jung. So it's it's a very rich field with many nuances of particularities given each particular thinker. Yes. So, so Stan, in, in your other book, C.G. Jung and the Alchemical Imagination, you have this tremendous chapter where you, and I've, I've never really thought about this, but you talk about Jung's notion of the self, which I know is linked to individuation, building on James, Joyce, James Joyce's idea of chaosmos. And oh, yeah. I, I just thought that was so well said. And, and I'm wondering if you could maybe speak to that a little bit, because that metaphor resonated with me quite a bit. Yeah. Well, that's has lots of nuances too, James. <laughs> uh, an interesting thinker. I think in the article that Jung wrote about Joyce, which was interesting, was that in reading him, he didn't understand him at all. And he was reading him and just fell asleep in the middle of working on it. <laughs> and on awakening, it was like, oh my, he, he had it. He had the vision of what it was all about. But the play between knowing and not knowing, rationality and irrationality, cosmos and chaos are parts of psychic reality that each play off of each other in some way so as to present something different than just some knowledgeable wholeness or cosmos as understanding and the total lack of understanding, the kind of maybe black sun aspect or Deridian deconstruction of it all. And they come together in this play of what Joyce calls chiasmos. Mm. And that is, I think, something very important to understanding many of the different thinkers who have some sense of a goal that's not a goal or the philosopher's stone that's not a stone, you know. So that play of not being able to hold it in a literal way moves it into a much more passionate, complex expression of what wholeness might seem to try to indicate. Yeah. Now, this, you know, we, we've mentioned that the process of alchemy has all of these stages, and one of the incipient stages is often identified, you mentioned this term, the blackening 
or the negredo. And perhaps this goes hand in hand with experiences of depression or ennui and might be those experiences that send folks into uh, psychoanalysis or some for, some form of therapy. How how do you as an analyst or how might an analysand experience the sort of confluence of the alchemical metaphors with their dream images? And how do you identify like where someone is at in their sort of alchemical becoming, for lack of a better word? Let's say you somebody comes in with, you know, depressive symptoms, a dream image, maybe there's something specific, you know, like maybe something that happened either in your own case, or maybe a, a patient that's memorable to you. How, how do you sort of square all, you know, these psychoanalytic terms with these, these alchemical images? Yeah. You know, there are many different ways that the alchemists and the people who've written about alchemy speak about what is representative of the alchemical process, as you mentioned, the negredo or darkness or depression or the shadow in Jung's sense can be a stage so that anything having to do with uh, dream images that seem to refer to that blindness or darkness or suffering or stuckness or inability to move or to think or to feel, you know, certainly brings up the idea of the negredo or the shadow. And there's the literal shadow, the the repressed personal shadow, then there's the archetypal shadow, the shadow that is both, you know, personal but yet transpersonal in some way that might emerge in and through a dream. But let me let me expand the reflection a little bit by noting, I'm sure you guys know that, but for instance, if you look at the work of Edinger, who, who by the way, I really appreciate, even though I don't theoretically agree with some of his stuff, he, he was one of my early analysts, and I valued him tremendously. I had a tremendous projection onto him and lots of funny stories to tell about that, but I have a great deal of appreciation for him, even though I have some theoretical differences. Mm. But he approaches alchemy through all these different, you know, calcanadio, sublimatio, all the different levels of, you know, the ways that you work alchemically. Hillman takes an aesthetic approach, which is a little bit different. He relies on the imagination of color in alchemy, which was very, very important to him. Originally, his book, I think he was thinking of referring to it, you know, as the colors of the soul. And actually, that's a book that I'll be writing now that I've been asked to write for spring, it's Revisioning Alchemy, James Hillman and the Colors of the Soul. And what I'm going to pick up on there are the aesthetic movement that link different parts of the alchemical process to what people experience. So that if someone is extremely innocent or naive or very young in their spirit, there is a kind of virginal whiteness that mm. comes, 
which shows itself in lots of ways through different images that they might express. And that whiteness undergoes because of things that happen in life, hurts or disappointments or lacks, pretty soon darkens and can go into a, a pretty deep darkness. And then as Jim talks about it, that darkness and living in that darkness and working with that darkness starts to blue. It starts to turn a little bit blue, which means that it moves from the deepest kind of depression into a kind of melancholic feeling, which has a little bit of reflective, almost philosophical ways of thinking about it. It's not locked into the darkness as much, but still a considerable suffering or struggling with an understanding of life or movement. And that blueness also has a way of silvering. There's a whole chapter on silvering and whitening that Jim talks about, so that that movement picks up on sparkles and things like that that happen sometimes in dream images or, you know, many different kinds of things that can touch that kind of experience. So the albedo, which is whitening in alchemy, is sometimes thought of as the goal, the reaching of the goal of alchemy. I think Gigrich stops or likes the idea of the whitening albedo. But for Hillman, the albedo was itself a little bit a very good state, but a state where the intellect plays a large role in the development of the psyche. And that intellect somehow can not be as fully connected to the depths as the alchemists intend or the analyst intends. And it goes through what Hillman calls a yellowing process. And that yellowing kind of sours the, the whitening, but it sours it in a way that leads down into the bodily experiences of depth that turn from a yellowing and a kind of glow into an enriched reddening or the rebedo. Mm. And that rich reddening starts to come close to what the alchemists begin to see as something close to the stone, the red stone, and the coming to a, a sense of completion. So in dreams, dreams are filled with things that fit different kinds of developmental processes or aesthetic processes, dream images, and sometimes alchemy can throw a little light on it. But I don't, in my work, just automatically leap to alchemy with every image. I try to stay with the image, mm. it says, when I work with a person or their dreams. I stay with where it goes. And sometimes where it goes reveals some wonderfully interesting, resonant, alchemical-like experiences. But it's not that I use alchemy as a template that I use to impose on what happens in a more spontaneous imagistic way. Got you. Yeah. You know, w w one of the things I wondered about, and I'm not sure how to put these two together because it does seem like alchemy does follow different stages at the same time. And, 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 and I think you do this better than probably anybody else. You highlight how 
the 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 blackness, the negrito, that that part doesn't ever really go away either. And and you know, one of the things that I think about in revisioning psychology when Hillman's talking about depression, he uses the Christian kind of metaphors of crucifixion and resurrection that that you can't have resurrection without crucifixion that they kind of go together and you can't really ever escape kind of the blackness. And, and I just think as a therapist working with people, that's so profound as they're coming to terms with their own depression. Yeah. I think that's right. And he also picks up on it, for instance, when he talks about moving from blackness to blueness, mm. he says, blueness isn't simply blue. There's black in it as well. <laughs> <laughs> so he keeps, he keeps each phase linked up in the color mm. so that the colors aren't just exactly literal. You know, they're imagistic expressions of sure. an aesthetic reality. You know, there was something in your book on Jung's alchemical philosophy that really stood out to me, and I needed to address it here on this podcast, because I think it speaks not only to me personally, but perhaps to a lot of the listenership who follows my podcast. If you haven't guessed, Kiki and I are on different podcasts, but he invited me here today. You talk about Jung's notion of the shadow. And I think this attends the notion of the of the blackening or the negredo somewhat. But you, you say something th that that I thought was really unique because you talk about the shadow in terms of figures that we invest in and you specifically pick out philosophers, if you remember, like Plato, Aristotle, could be Hillman, Jung, Freud, who knows, Derrida, and coming from a world of philosophically minded people. It's not uncommon for me to experience people who are so deeply invested in their own work that they turn their metaphysical position or their political position into a kind of emotional readout. Mm. I, I, I was hoping that you could unpack that a little bit because I thought that was just really wonderful in this book. Hmm. Well, let me see if I understand it. Correct me or help me see further if I I'm not speaking about what you're asking exactly, but certainly philosophers have shadows. Mm -hmm. Philosophy itself has a shadow. If you have a certain kind of orientation, oftentimes the things that you leave out or leave behind or philosophers you turn into a shadow. You may find Kant a shadow for Hegel or Plato a shadow for Aristotle or etc., etc., but they may be parts of their own story which they're trying to deal with in their own way of thinking that they try to transform and integrate into some vision that contains but surpasses the split. So it's that kind of thing. And some philosophers have shadows. If you have, you know, let's say people who are very resonant with phenomenology. When you have language philosophers, they can often fall into the shadow of phenomenologists and vice versa. So different theories, different attitudes, different spirits can lock into differences that are part of the deepest parts of the philosopher's inner struggle and then identify and project outward how philosophy in its multiple ways of speaking can resonate with different parts of the psyche. That more than suffices to answer my question, and in fact, some ways goes beyond it. With what I do, I'm online quite a bit. And of course, you know, I have my philosophical favorites, 
I guess you would say I have my targets as well, philosophically. And I think there's always a kind of balance to be found, you know, in terms of finding a sense of humor about the things that I criticize or even the positions that I take as not to be so, so deeply invested to be, to be thrown by them or to, to exclude that part of myself emotionally that maybe is attempting to be integrated through the philosophical work itself. Sure. Yeah, I think that is a part of what philosophers struggle with, and some struggle with it by suppressing parts that they can't integrate or don't want to integrate or don't fit, and others find ways of transforming, manifesting, dealing with, linking, transcending, finding different ways of dealing with those aspects. So there's a a linkage for me between both personal and transpersonal aspects of our ways of thinking. Yeah. Now, I don't want to take us too far afield, but I think there's a connection between the two of you. If I'm remembering correctly, you probably won't know this, Dan, but but Craig has worked on this wonderful philosopher's tarot deck and the hang and the hangman he portrays as Foucault. And I, if I'm remembering correctly in your black sun book, maybe one of your analysands has a dream of Foucault as the hangman. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I vaguely remember that. <laughs> that was unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. And this was my own little alchemical opus. And I guess this is a time to take an advertising break for my philosopher's tarot deck. Absolutely. Everybody buy it. It's amazing. <laughs> Tell me. I'd like to see it. <laughs> Jung is in the deck. Freud is in the deck. You know what, Stan? I will. I will. I'll, I'll, I'll just send you one. I'll buy one and send yeah. you one. Yeah, we're yeah. going to give you a free one. We'll give you a free one. Yeah, absolutely. Which brings us, I think, to, I, I think, a really important point in your book, which is what we might call the post-Jungian tradition mm. or maybe simply the Jungian tradition. We've talked a little bit about Hillman. On, on my own podcast, we've done episodes on Hillman. I know Kike's done some stuff on Hillman, but this is probably the first time we're working with Gigerich's work. And what I find profoundly interesting, and I haven't come across the work of Gilles Deleuze in your work, Stan, although I know you do work with Derrida and Foucault a little bit, but I find a lot of overlap between the work of Hillman and Deleuze. And what's interesting to me is Deleuze, you know, angles himself against Hegel and the Hegelian tradition, and along comes Wolfgang Gigerich and you know, has this sort of like friendly rivalry with, with Hillman. And it's almost as if these philosophical debates are now playing out in the world of psychoanalysis. Mm. So I was hoping maybe you could kind of give us an overview of may, maybe a little bit more on Hillman, but how does Hillman's work contrast with the work of Gigerich? Well, the major, well, let me just, that's been a very big question for me. And a lot of the work that I've done, I have, contrasted Hillman and Giegrich's work and my own judgments and reflections on Wolfgang's work. There is part of that in the book you mentioned on the Jung's philosophy, where I even have a chart linking or not linking, showing the things that are important to Hillman and important to Giegrich, how they differ. It's also true in the other works, papers that I've done, the philosopher, the psychologist who's not a psychologist, for instance, is one paper I did on Wolfgang. And we've had our struggles together over, you know, years of differences of opinion. The one article where I try as fairly as I can 
is in the book on Jung and the alchemical imagination. It was originally a paper called, uh, what was it called? I can't even think of the name of it now. It was my attempt to lay out Hillman and Giegrich's work and the similarities and differences between them. And the major thing that I tried to focus on was Jim's importance of sticking with the image and imagination and Giegrich's idea of moving beyond it into a Hegelian dialectic of absolute thought and reason. And so the two of them had that tension, and Giegrich was always trying to move beyond into not only a post-Jungian, but a post-Hillmanian perspective. I have some criticisms that I've written about Wolfgang's work, although I've appreciated much of what he's contributed. There are some fundamental ways that I disagree with him, and I find myself closer to James and the importance of the imaginal, the imagination. And in the book that you mentioned, I tried to talk a little bit about how image gives rise to thought, like Hegel says and like Giegrig says, but that thought also gives rise to image. There's a circulatio there. There's a circular connection between the two. And so it's not that one linear surpasses the other, but that they link together in a very profound and important way. And that's my way of kind of resolving mm. that tension. Hillman also does take a step where he actually says that he's moving beyond the image, which was surprising to me in a paper he did called The Azure Vault. And I did that in my book as well. That my was a comment, good one. Yeah, I liked it a lot. And then I presented on it down in the Young Symposium and they had it published. But there, I think he doesn't really leave the image behind. He just expands it in a certain way. And I try to speak to that as well. But that is the big difference as I see it. For me, there's a lot to be said about bypassing everyday life. There's a book by Krell. It's an important philosophical work where he criticizes Heidegger because of his separation between being and beings and not being able to really integrate them. And it's the same kind of separation, I believe, that Giegrich does with regard to what he leaves behind as seeing psychology proper as almost a theoretical discipline that doesn't really include the everyday experience of the person. Although he says he deals with it in therapy, his psychology proper just goes beyond it and doesn't seem to address it in any kind of significant way from my perspective. So there is a lot there to be evaluated, and Wolfgang has a lot of responses to that, and that debate remains an open and unresolved one generally. Great. You know, when when I think of Hillman, I, I think a sort of uh, another, you know, syzygy or dyad that we, we should contend with somewhat here is Hillman and Jung. 
himself, mm-hmm. especially the the contribution that Hillman makes to the tradition of collapsing this dyad of the ego and self, right. in, you know, in you know, and and uplifting the primacy of the image. I, I'm curious, and 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 this is how I, I kind of want to start to talk about the Black Sun a little bit more because when I read the Black Sun, it made me think that it in part chronicles a well. There, there's a way in which I think you can read the Black Sun that's that's almost reparative of this split of Hillman and Jung. Because it, it seems in a way in that book that you want to uphold the concept of the self, but you also want to talk about this concept of a remainder that cannot be integrated. And I'm curious, you know, over the history of your work, both professionally and personally, where do you stand now in relation to the idea of the ego and self as Jung posits it versus the contributions of Hillman, you know, and 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 the way that you develop this idea in the black sun that there's something that stands outside of this process it's kind of heterological to the process of in individuation or integration that can never be fully assimilated how do those like how do we parse all those concepts between jung hillman and yourself yeah well that's an ongoing question for me. <laughs> I'm working on a book now called The Philosopher's Stone, Alchemy and the Art of Illumination, which picks up on the Black Sun, but whereas in the Black Sun, I focused on the linking between darkness and light, illumination and darkness, but I lean toward the blackness. In this book, I pick up the same link of light and dark, blackness and illumination, but I'm leaning toward the light. That not a light that's separated from darkness and not a darkness that's separated from light, but a furthering of the struggle with the question that you're asking me. One of the things that comes up about the Philosopher's Stone and the idea of the goal and the linking, I don't know if you know David Miller's work, but David Miller wrote a paper, I think, what was it? I think I had, was the called Stoned, The Goal of Alchemy and Psychotherapy. <clears throat> and it was a paper he gave down at one of the Jung symposiums. And in it, he deals with the question of something like you're asking and deals with it from the point of view of Jung, from the point of view of Hillman, from my point of view, from Gigerich's point of view, and from his own point of view, mm. which he ends with a couple of poems. <laughs> and for me, it's still an ongoing question that I'll be trying to continue to work on. But I would say a couple, just a couple more things to fill in. You know, we talk about post-Jungians, but I still feel, at least for me and maybe in general, I feel more pre-Jungian than post-Jungian. I still feel like there's so much in Jung to learn that I'm still trying to understand and interpret. And I think that one of the things that Jim did, which interested me, there was a panel at the International where he invited six or seven of us to speak about his appreciation for Jung, even though in some ways his thought moves in some different ways, there's still a lot of mystery in what Jung has to say that isn't just simply easily left behind. 
because there's a tremendous depth of the unknown and the mysterious in what he's speaking about that's not easily put together in theoretical terms. So I think there is, while there are differences and we can talk about post-Jungian, there are ways that it's still possible to open up both thinkers or all three thinkers or four thinkers and reconsider these issues that are very deep archetypal issues that still remain philosophically ambiguous. Mm. Yeah, you know, w- w- one of the things that I have found, because, you know, Jung is so quotable, and, and I think he becomes so popular with so many different kinds of people, that that sometimes he's reduced to a few categories, but not really explored at, at the level of depth that he was truly engaging in. And so I, I have to agree with you that I would kind of see myself, I'd never thought about it in those terms, but as a pre-Union, because there's still a lot to kind of understand and grapple with that I, I'm sure I'll never fully, you know, get a hold of. There's a lot of mystery in, in Jung's work, and he really touches on some really difficult theoretical issues that even transcend theoretical in some way. So I, I also really enjoyed, and maybe this builds on what how you were responding to Craig, I enjoyed your engagement with Derrida and, and just the whole idea of the self and no self and in the self under erasure. When, when I spoke with Edward Casey, he, he mentioned how much Hillman really enjoyed you know, the post-structuralists and, and that he was kind of smitten by them at some level. I was wondering if you could speak to that aspect of things. Well, part of when we were working on the alchemical psychology book, I mentioned a lot of Derrida to Hillman and certain things that he ended up reading. And he was really open to it. I mean, there were ways that initially there were some criticisms, but then some real openness to it as well. And so I think that there is a lot there. I think he even mentions it in some places and in some letters that he's written, where Derrida plays a very interesting and important role. By the way, if you're interested in Derrida, I was just, I don't know if you know John Caputo. Yeah, actually I do. I I really like Caputo. Now, this is a book where he works with having invited Derrida to the school where he was, and there's a wonderful description of Derrida and Derrida's work and the mystery of it and the struggle with it and dialogue about it. It really is a really, I think, valuable book about Derrida and a number of different ideas. But I think Hillman was open to a lot of that stuff and actually touches on a lot of it within his own way of thinking. This is something that Kike and I have talked a little bit about you know, privately, I I think the one thing that stands out in Derrida's work that overlaps with what you're doing, and I would be really interested to see you have an engagement with the work of Gilles Deleuze, if you haven't already, like reading Difference and Repetition, because I think one of the questions that you pose in the context of the Black Sun is this idea, and, and alchemy itself has a sort of oppositional structure to it, you know, in the same way that that Jungian psychology does. And this is one of the things that Hillman rages against, even in a book like Dream in the Underworld, has a whole section against the oppositionalism of thought. 
actually somebody that we recently had on our podcast, a philosopher named Vernon Sisney, did a book on Deleuze and Derrida that, that navigates precisely the different coordinates of struggles against oppositional thinking. How can we think in terms of concepts that, that don't depend on, you know, strictly binarized terms? And I was wondering how you use the, the concept either of deconstruction or non-oppositionalism within your work to articulate the theory of the black sun or your own version of alchemy. Yeah. Well, that's a big question for me, but let me offer a thought, just an intuition way of responding. I think that from my perspective, opposition is very important. Opposition and overcoming it is very important. To speak in multiplicities rather than oppositions can give room to both opposition and integration. Mm. So the move toward multiplicity, I think, is an important thing that Hillman also emphasizes. The other thing that I think is really important, for instance, my one of my critiques of Hegel, when Hegel moves toward the absolute, the other is already in the vessel of the self and never really outside of the vessel of the self. But when one really moves into a relationship with otherness, like, oh, I don't know, there's a number of philosophers now, I can't think of their names, but when you move into the mystery of deep unification, one experiences anotherness that one can't simply define as in me or outside of me, mm. certainly is anotherness that breaks both categories of bringing it together or keeping it apart. What I find in that break is a mystery. And that mystery doesn't lend itself to any particular metaphysical view that separates or links the opposites. I haven't looked much at Gigerich's work. In fact, I think your book is probably the most close that I've gotten to his work, but the idea that he wants to reintroduce this, you know, theory of interiority, you know, is I, I sort of have an instinctual repulsion to it now after years of, of working with this, the post-structuralists. I mean, at the same time, I, I understand the value of, of, of turning inward at moments, but it seems as if there's there's something more. There, There is something beyond. And if there is like an ecstasy or a kind of rupture or, or the process of individuation culminates in a kind of redness, that we would have this more porous integration of an inside and an outside. I think so. He talks about absolute negative interiority. And I think for me, that brings up, you know, absolute positive exteriority. Where is that? <laughs> you know, I I don't know if you know the work, just a link to that. If you know the Buddhist philosopher Nargarjuna, Nargarjuna for me has been a very interesting figure because one of the ways he works with these things is that he starts out with something that is an external object. And then you can say, well, it's not really external. And then when he does that, we understand why that's not really external, but it's both external and not external. And then when he does that, he then goes to the next step. It's neither 
external nor not external. And that comes very close to what the Buddhists call the void or the emptiness. And then for the emptiness, the Buddhists say, the void has to be voided. So when you void the void, you bring back samsara and nirvana into a connection again. So that whole issue works out through that logistics into a deconstructive way of appreciating the way none of those categories can simply hold fast and give credit to interiority or exteriority or even the linking of them or the dismissing of them or the transforming of them. Whatever that transformation can mean, that brings me as close as I've been able to get to not being fixed in any of those philosophical metaphysical positions. Yeah, that's good. So Stan, here's kind of another question that I've been kind of wondering about if, if I kind of create a straw man argument for just a second, for the sake of, you know, setting it up, I think unions and, and, and even alchemical psychology can be kind of set up as this like navel gazing, very esoteric, really has no implications maybe for the political side of things. I, I don't believe that that is the case. And I'm just wondering, cause I know Hillman was, was very into how we can kind of move some of this out of the clinical space do you have any thoughts on how your project kind of leads into the political or the social? I, I think Craig is is interested in that kind of stuff too. Maybe he has a different spin on the question, but I wonder kind of what you make of that. Yeah. Well, I, I've let me tell you a moment where I can talk about that in a strange way, maybe. I, I think I've mentioned this before. I don't think I've ever done it on a podcast. I don't know, to tell you the truth, but it it sort of is my, you know, when I, I'm, I mean, I think everybody, whether they acknowledge it or not, is obviously engaged in the political realities that we live in. I right. think you can't help but be in some way. And so I, I was finding myself you know, watching TV. And every time Trump came on, I started to develop this tremendous anger mm. in reaction to to him and started to think about psychologically, you know, what what is it? I mean, I, I understand in a sense what it is, but it was it was above and beyond just my disagreements or my differences of thought. There was this rageful kind of quality to it that I felt had something to do with myself. And I started to think about that. What is it that's making me so enraged here? Well, I think it wasn't long after that I had a dream. And in the dream... I was at Trump Tower in New York, and he was sitting on a bench, and I was lying on the ground. And there was a doctor there giving me an enema. And I was really uncomfortable about what was going to come out. What what was my shit going to look like? <laughs> it really bothered me. And I was remembering one of the things about Trump that really did bother me was that he always had to be the winner. Mm. 
And so anyway, when I got the enema, what came out of me were a whole bunch of marbles, these beautiful marbles. And what it reminded me of was when I was a kid, I loved to play with marbles and I loved winning. And when I realized how much I loved winning and how I was so enraged at it, I found some connection to my self-hate and my hate of Trump. Hmm. Not that it changed my judgment about who he was or how I differed from him, but it helped diminish the fire of rage that part of me was linked to that was an inner dislike of feeling a need to win. And so it just opened up a different kind of space for my own internal work. Not that it changed my politics, but it did change the overreactions that I felt I was having. Maybe they weren't even overreactions, but my reactions. (laughs) Well, what I like about what you just did there, that this whole gesture of telling us the dream and the sort of affective difference that you had working Mm -hmm. on the image I think is really valuable for anyone who's interested in this work because you've given us a vignette of what Jungian psychoanalysis looks like, what the alchemical process looks like, what image works looks like, and the potential upshots. That's always something when when I have these kinds of conversations on a podcast that I hope listeners go away with. But with that said, I actually have a question that I want to ask that rebounds off of Kike's question about politics And it's about this concept of the black sun. And maybe we didn't flesh this out enough. I I don't think we've yet said what the black sun image is, what it does, how it functions as an image and how you've worked in therapeutic space. And maybe we'll start there first, but I'd like you to also talk about, given the sort of global crises that we live within now, like literally on the verge of World War III on any given day, The global climate crisis right now, this mountain that I live on is enshrouded in the ash of the Canadian forests. The sun is blackening before our eyes. And and it makes me think, too, that, you know, I actually did some Jungian psychoanalysis with Michael Geller in California. I'm not sure if you know him, but there were times at which I was tempted to talk about politics in the analytical setting. And I think he skillfully like sort of staved that off because within a sort of Jungian context, that's where the big projections come in. And he he might have been right to do that. (laughs) But I wonder if we live in a time where these politics are so exigent that those working within Jungian psychoanalysis or post-Jungianism should develop some kind of response or some sort of methodology for facing this crisis head on. I I know I've asked a lot there, but perhaps you could start by talking about the Black Sun. Right. Well, let me just say initially, whatever work we do with our individual complexes, our own unconscious our archetypal engagements. We also have an outer life. And relating to all that stuff helps us in the way we live our lives. So I think by the deeper we can know ourselves or struggle with ourselves or go to the deepest unknown parts of ourselves and open to them and work with them, the more ground we have to live our lives in a world that is problematic. And how we do that, 
is very individual. Jung himself said he didn't have a political answer, but that the answer came from the personal individuation that he thought he could help people with. And the more he could help people develop, the more they could respond to life in ways that perhaps was a better way of living. The world itself right now is like a black sun. I think you're right. We're, we've come to very close to what feels like a very dark and potentially destructive crisis at any moment. And facing that or trying to stay with it is extremely difficult. And how each of us does it or doesn't do it is, again, a very personal question. But I think it does involve, I don't think we can ignore politics. I don't think we can ignore the lives that we're living and where we live and who we live with and other people. You know, that's part of the reality of our larger existence. Kike, did you have anything else? No, I, I think that's everything that I was wondering about. Stan, it's just been a treat to sit with you and, and learn from you. And I've really enjoyed your books. I, as a psychotherapist who does a lot of dream work, I, I really can't wait for your dream book to come out. I'm, I'm excited about that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. I, I think for our listeners, this will be a, a real treat because most of us began our philosophical journey somewhere in the continental tradition. And there's been a burgeoning interest in the work of Hillman. And, and this is one of the ways that I met Kike. For some of us, this work is coming back into the light now and maybe in a, in a very timely sort of way. Appreciate talking with you both. It was very interesting questions. and I enjoyed talking with you. <laughs>